Father, we do come before you and we thank you for your tremendous love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you gave your only begotten Son, you gave him for us and he willingly came. And Father, I thank you that it is through his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. And Father, you've said in your word that as we have received Christ, we are to so walk in him. I pray you would just pour out your grace that we would trust him more. Father, we thank you for this time we have together, and I pray that you would use your word to work in our hearts. You would expose wrong thinking, areas of sin, that we would confess and be forgiven, and we would be built up. We would uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus. We ask you to bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. Well, the reality is, if you don't know Christ, there's certainly trouble in this world. Look on TV. There's trouble all over the place. And yet there are times of uh, happiness from the world standpoint. But for believers, uh, when we cease to live the rest of this time in the flesh for our own desires, but for the will of God, we will suffer for it at times. Those in whom do not know Christ might, as we saw last week in First Peter, malign us because we don't run the same way we used to run. We live differently, not because we're externally trying to be righteous, but because Christ is working his life through us. And we might suffer for it. The reality is, if you're a true believer, there are going to be times in which we are going to suffer for trusting in Jesus, for doing what is right. And as we've seen in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is trying to encourage believers who are about to enter into a fiery ordeal. But in the meantime, they are suffering for what is doing what is right. They're being slandered. They're being maligned. And so how should we respond to suffering for Christ when it comes? You know, it can be pretty painful. We can get shaken off our kilter. We can get... Uh, moved in a sense uh, through our thoughts and and our mindset when difficulties come it's not easy when people slander you it's not easy when people make fun of you it's not easy when people shun you it's not easy to lose relationships because you're trusting and obeying jesus christ now it's not all bad there's joy and there's there's grace and there's peace in, in christ but yet there is suffering how should we respond well, today we're going to continue our look at how to respond to suffering as we see how we are to do so in the midst of the last days. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 9 today. Now, again, the context of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor. It is about 64 AD, and they are suffering. They are going through various trials, and they are about to suffer under Nero's persecution of Christians. And Peter is writing them to share the reality of who they are. They are chosen sojourners, temporary residents on this earth who will suffer for a period of time but have been chosen for a great salvation and have an eternal inheritance prepared for them in heaven. We've seen in light of our great salvation in Christ of being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we are to fix our hope in Christ alone that we are to be holy because he is holy. Now, he does that through us. We are to live in the context of godly fear. We saw this in chapter 1. We are to love the body of Christ because we've been born again unto that. We have a new nature if you're a believer. 
And we are to yearn for the pure milk of the word that by it we might grow and respect the salvation. Because God is building us up, the true church, as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable and glorifying to him. We were not his people, but we have been saved by his mercy. We were once not his people, but now we are the people of God that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then in the middle of chapter 2, we began the application section of the book, in which we saw as, in verse 11 and 12, as aliens and temporary residents on this earth, we are to stay far away from fleshly lusts, which wage war with our souls. And then he talks about keeping our behavior excellent among Gentiles, among non-believers. So the very thing they slander you, they may glorify God as they give an account before him in the day of visitation. And we saw how we are to behave in light of governments, in light of relationships within marriage, and how we are to behave with each and every one of each other here, to be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, because God's ears are attentive to the prayer of the righteous, and his face is against those who, who do evil. We are to keep a good conscience. We are to be ready uh, to give an account for the hope that we have within us, yet with gentleness and reverence. And we saw, because Christ suffered for doing what is right, that God used the suffering that he went through to bring about the greatest good, that we need to have the mindset of Christ. We need to, as we saw last week in chapter 4, we need to arm ourselves with the same thinking or same intent. When we suffer for doing what is right, God is working behind the scenes in his redemptive plan, and ultimately he brought about our redemption through man's evil in, in his predetermined plan that Christ would go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. And within that, we are to have the same mindset concerning our suffering when we do what is right. Now, we can suffer for sin. We all sin. We all blow it. And we may suffer for those things. But this is when we suffer for doing what is right. Have the same mind as Christ had in trusting himself to the one who judges righteously, relying on him to bring about good even in the midst of, of evil. And then we saw the time had been sufficient for us to live the way we used to live. That time is up. If you've been a believer, if you are a true believer, you no longer live for your own will. You live by and large for the will of God. If you've truly been saved, now if you've never been saved, you still live for your will. And God wants you to be saved, that you would be changed from the inside and live for him. And if you're living for him, you're going to be, as we saw, maligned. And people will judge you in a sense, but yet they are going to be judged for their deeds if they don't respond and repent. The judge is standing right at the door. And that leads us to our passage today where we're going to see how we are to respond to suffering in these last days. Now we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 9, but I want to read up to that what we saw last week so that will help us in our understanding of the context 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, re re reflecting his suffering for our salvation, by the way, arm yourselves, you know, heavily arm yourselves with the same purpose or intent or thinking. That's what we saw. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The reality, if you are suffering for doing what is right, something's changed in your life. So you're now living differently. Look at verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Hey, it's already passed. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And in all this, they, that's the non-believers, are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation. And what? They malign you. They treat you unfairly. They, we see earlier they slander. They speak all kinds of evil. Uh, verse 5, But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men or according to men, we saw that literally, that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And then our passage, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll see this. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Today, I believe we're going to see two things. That uh, how we are to live in the last days in light of the suffering we might endure and have to go through for doing what is right. First of all, we're to be dependent on God. We're to be praying. We're to have our mindset right towards God. And we can get all mixed up and our relationship with God can be all out of whack when we start suffering, even for doing what is right. And secondly, we're to have our relationship right with believers. We're to be loving and serving so that God is glorified. So how should we live in light of the last days? First of all, we're to be dependent and praying. Look at verse 7 of our passage. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter says here that we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Those are two commands we're going to see for believers. Now, if you're a non-believer, you can't do that. You need to know Christ. And once you know Christ, he enables you to obey. He uses his word in your heart. So for believers, we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And notice he says here that one of the reasons why the end of all things is at hand. Well, you'll say, wait a second, this was uh, over 2,000 years ago. The end of all things at hand, what does he mean by that? This term, end, telos, means achieving an end or fulfilling or completing. The term is at hand means literally drawing near. It is drawing near. And it's in a tense in Greek that basically speaks of something that's already happened that affects you now. The end of all things has drawn near and that affects you right now. The end of all things has drawn near. And so what is he talking about? Remember, this passage doesn't sit on its own. It, it actually comes on the heels of what we just read a minute ago. And in your Bibles, I think only the New King James does this, but there's, there's actually a conjunction in here that connects this portion with the portion behind. Uh, a conjunction like it could be translated and or, or but in a sense. And so if you'll remember, we saw in verse 5 that non-believers who malign you because you're living for Christ, 
shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ready, right there standing at the door. We saw the reality that God is a gracious God, that he has not brought forth his judgment yet. People are getting away with sin right now in this world. And yet he is patient, not willing for any to perish, but desires all to come to repentance. But he's standing right there, ready to judge, ready to judge. You think of the judge at the door knocking right there, ready to do so. And he says in verse 6, for the gospel for this purpose has been preached, even to those who are dead. We saw last week, those who had passed away had heard the gospel before they died, that although they are judged as judged in the flesh as men, I think the context was, men malign you, they judge you for what you're doing. You're not running with them anymore, but God is going to judge them. God is going to judge them. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And then, and, or but, the end of all things is at hand. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is ready to judge. He has accomplished salvation. There is nothing left on for him to do here. He has come already. He has brought forth salvation. His next coming will be one to take his church away and then to come in judgment. In that light, the end of all things is, is at hand. This, this time of sin and darkness. I hate my sin. I hope you hate your sin. I hate it when I blow it. I can't stand it. I don't want to be that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by, the, by what the Lord said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not there, but we're hungering. We want to be more like Christ. But this end, of all, this time is up. It's coming up. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And while you're turning there, James says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing right at the door. It's, 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 it can happen any time. It is only being delayed because God is saving people. It could happen at any time. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. The context is love and the relationship to how we respond to, to governments. And thus, that's interesting context for, for chapter 13. But he says... And do this, verse 11, Romans 13, 11, knowing that the time, knowing the time, you've got to know the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. What does he talk about that? I thought I was already saved. Yes, when you believed in Jesus Christ, you were saved. You were justified. You were declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins. And now he is sanctifying us. He is making us like Christ on a practical basis. But we will be glorified. Our salvation is not done yet. And he has given us his spirit as a pledge of that inheritance, the redemption of our bodies. And so here, uh, Paul says in and here he says, salvation is nearer to us than we believe. It's closer. Every day, the culmination of your salvation, either by passing away into the Lord's presence or the Lord coming, it is closer and closer and closer every day. This is not it. If this life is what you're living for, we are of all men to be pitied. This is a terrible thing. We live in the context of sin and wickedness. I don't want to sin. I don't want to live this life like this anymore. I want to be glorified, Right? I want to be in the Lord's presence. And he says, guess what? Your salvation is closer. It is closer. Wonderful passage. And then he says, the night is almost gone. Romans 13, 12. And the day is at hand. The night, really metaphorically, this time of sin and darkness. Darkness, sin. 
The day is almost at hand. He says, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The night is almost gone. The day of evil and sin is, is almost gone. Where, where wickedness seems to go unchecked, where we see horrible things all around us, where, where Satan, the God of this world, seems to be uh, getting away with everything. Well, that's not the case. It's almost gone. Yet God is saving people. But we are living in the last days. The end of all things is at hand. And as I mentioned briefly, it hasn't happened yet. Second Peter chapter 3, and you can read that on your own, because God is patient, not willing for any to, pay, to, to perish. He, he, he's not slow as some count slowness. He is a gracious, gracious God. The end of all things is at hand. Christ could come at any minute. We could go into his presence at any minute, and we enter into uh, eternity with him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, For they report what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These Thessalonians got saved. And notice what else he said. And I'll read this for you. And to wait for his son from heaven. You see, we're looking forward to Christ's coming, to making everything right. And the end of all things is at hand. It is very close. So therefore, we should be thinking rightly and serving and loving as the Lord shares in his word. Do you remember what we saw earlier in 1 Peter? Look back in chapter 1, verse 6 in 1 Peter. He says, in, in this you greatly rejoice. That's your salvation, by the way, in Jesus Christ. Even though now for a little while, it's a short time, get your, we got to get our thinking straight. Little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, multifaceted, could be any different type of trial, that the proof or demonstration of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. It's hot, isn't it? But uh, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look up a little further in verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Gather up your thoughts rightly. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand, and it is so easy to get caught up in this world and the temporary realities of this and not add in the eternal realities to what is going on. And so because the end of all things is at hand, what are we to be doing? Back to our passage in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, therefore, in light of Christ coming as the judge to those who have rejected him and bringing about the consummation of our salvation, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We're going to see, he's going to say, get your thinking right so that you can be right with the Lord. You see, when difficulties come, our thinking gets very, very, uh, it can stray, it can be scattered, it can be... Uh, in such a way that causes us to be distracted. If you're going through a difficult time, if you're suffering for Christ, it is very tempting to focus on those things, to be troubled, 
to be troubled about those who may be maligning you, whatever it might be. Look back in chapter 3. We saw that. So he says, because the end of all things is at hand, be of sound judgment. This is a command. This, the Greek word is sophroneo. Well, what does that mean? We've seen this word quite a bit in Scripture. It, it comes from two Greek words, sozo, which means to save, and phroneo, or fron, fron, which means mind. It means redeemed mind, saved mind. It speaks of thinking sensibly, having sound judgment. The word literally speaks of being in one's right mind. Jesus uses this, or Mark shares this, concerning the demon-possessed person that Jesus cast out a demon, Mark chapter 15, who had a legion, and, and within that he was sitting clothed in his sophron, his right mind, his right mind. It's translated sensible in Titus, prudus, prudent, not prudus, prudent, prudent uh, in 1 Timothy 3, translated temperate, discreet, self-controlled in other versions. It speaks of right thinking, sound thinking. And what is it that goes out the window when we suffer for doing what is right? Our thinking. We, we get tempted to be troubled by those things, and we need to be thinking rightly. Turn to Titus, and we see this quite a bit in the book of Titus. I want to just run through a few verses that relay it. And the reason why is because we're to be right-thinking, all of us, and we see that in our passage. Look at all the T's and get to Titus. And we saw, uh, and the ladies are seeing this right now, they're actually in this portion just finishing up in chapter 1 of Titus. But elders are to be sensible, you can't have a leader of the church who's not thinking rightly, not thinking soundly, right? Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good. Here's our word, sophroneo, sensible, sensible. Then look to chapter 2, 6 chapter 2 of Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, Paul tells Titus. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, here we go, sensible, right thinking. Sound in faith, love, perseverance. Older women are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage uh, the young women, that's the word, that they may sophronizo them, call them to right-mindedness. That's what that word is. Encourage them to love their husbands, love their children, to be, and here's the word again, sensible, sophronous, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be, here's our word again, sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrines, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, nor that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say. You know, in chapter 2 of Titus, later on, the grace of God has appeared, and it's instructing us to live sensibly, to think rightly. The reality is, the Christian life is about right thinking. It's about having God's Word controlling your mind and thoughts, that we would think rightly 
It's about the renewing of the mind. We, we saw that in Romans chapter 12. We are to not be conformed to this world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind. It's a constant, everyday thing as, as we're assaulted with the realities of life and tempted with our own desires. We take God's word and we allow him to use it by his spirit to change our thinking and how we think about things that we would think sensibly, that we would be thinking sensibly, that we would have a right sound judgment and that only happens when the word of god is 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 addressing our thinking you know 99.9 percent of the time when i talk with someone who's going through difficulty and there's issues it's usually because they're not thinking rightly just be honest with you i hear what they say and i go this is what the word of god says this is we got to think rightly and all of us are tempted to do that all of us can fall at those times and not think rightly and we are commanded to be thinking rightly. To be thinking rightly. We're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind that we would prove what God's will is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's so simple. In every circumstance, allow our minds to be controlled by what God says in the context of faith rather than what we feel, see, or, or, or desire. We're not robots. We're allowing the Spirit of God through His Word to to renew us, to renew our minds, so that we don't think the way we used to think before we were saved, because that's what will happen if we don't allow God's Word to affect us. So let me ask you this. What is your thought life like? What What is it like? Does your mind just get, does it run away when certain things happen in your life? Does it just go you know, we're all tempted. We're all tempted to, to worry, to be anxious, whatever it might be. We wouldn't have those commands as believers if we weren't. What is your thought life like? You know, only Christ through his word by his spirit can enable us to think rightly. That's the only way. When these things come upon us, humanly speaking, we can't stop thinking about stuff like that. We can't. We need to go to the Lord, as we'll see in the context of prayer, and let his word change our thinking allow god's word to apply to every area of your life especially when you're suffering as we see here in first peter so notice we have that first command but there's a second command in verse uh, seven be of sober spirit the end of all things is at hand therefore be in your right mind and be of sober spirit it's a command what does this mean What is it that causes us not to have sound judgment, not to be of sober spirit? Well, certainly, obviously, not being sober. We get the idea, when we think of soberness, we think of alcohol. We think of someone being drunk who's kind of out of control, not sober, inebriated. But we can be the same way in our thinking as believers when we allow the thoughts of what's going on in our lives to control us. We can be quite... uh, quite inebriated with our thinking in a sense that is not biblical and we are to be have a sober spirit sober spirit i read this earlier but back in uh, chapter 1 verse 13 gird your minds for action keep sober in spirit chapter 5 verse 8 peter says this very clearly we have an enemy satan by the way says be of sober spirit Be on the alert, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. Chapter 5, verse 8. We are commanded to be sober. We can be taken over by our emotions and, and whatever it might be. We're commanded to be sober. 
And we'll see in a minute, these things are so that we can have a right relationship with the Lord, that we can pray, that we can pray. That's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be doing. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 for a moment. It's in the T's there, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul's going to make the point that uh, because judgment is coming, we should be thinking rightly. And that's going to affect our actual behavior. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need for anyone, anything to be written to you. For you know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Hey, the end of all things is at hand, right? While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that this day should overtake you like a thief, but you are sons, all sons of light and sons of the day. Hey, you've been saved. You're no longer, you don't live that way anymore because Christ has changed you. He says, he says, uh, we are not of night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others, but let us be what? Alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we are of the day, let us be sober. Sober. Not just talking about alcohol. Most Christians aren't getting drunk. I'll tell you right now, I don't see many believers going out and get drunk. That's sin, obviously. It's our thinking. Our thinking can be all off the map. We can, we can be uh, inebriated, in a sense, by wrong thinking. We cannot be sober at times. So he says, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For what purpose? Look back in our passage, chapter 4, verse 7. For the purpose of prayer. So that our relationship with Christ would be right. You see, when our thinking is all over the map, it is very difficult to pray. It is very difficult to pray. It's really easy to worry, I'll tell you that much. But it's difficult to pray. And the purpose we are to renew our minds with God's truth and think soberly is so that we can pray. Now, why is prayer so important? Obviously, God commands it. Secondly, it is an integral part of our relationship with him. It is how we communicate with God. We saw back in chapter 3 that husbands who don't live in an understanding way, their prayers are hindered. If we've got sin in our lives, we're not thinking rightly, prayers are hindered. We could pray all day long. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear, Psalm 66. But if we see things rightly, confess sin if needed, soberly look at the situation rightly, not being taken away by the circumstances, frightened and whatever it might be, overcome. We trust the Lord. We allow his word to correct us. It is for the purpose of prayer. Another thing about prayer is prayer really shows our dependence on God, by the way. The Lord knows what we're asking before we even ask. But we communicate with him. He is a person. We communicate with the living God. The living God. And when we pray it shows our total inability and our inability to to do anything we are in total dependence on the lord lord god i can't do this lord god i can't think rightly help me to do so lord god 
Help me to see my circumstances rightly. Help me to, to choose the right thing to do in this. Help me to trust you. Pray for my grace to trust you more. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of so sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Are you going through a difficult time? Are you suffering for doing what is right? You need to get your thinking right so that you can be praying. We need to do that. We need to be clear-headed so that we can pray. And notice, clear-headed prayer and a right relationship with the Lord precedes serving. You see, you can go out and serve and try to love everybody, do all the stuff in church, and apart from having a right relationship with the Lord, thinking rightly, forget it. We need to be thinking rightly. We need to be walking rightly with the Lord. Then we do those things that God calls us to do. Look at our passage. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So we have our relationship with God in order, thinking rightly so that we can be praying. Then notice the focus changes to our relationship with the body of Christ, which is loving, and as we'll see next week, Lord willing, serving one another. He says here, we are to fervently love one another. Fervently love. And next week we're going to see that we are to faithfully serve one another. But your relationship with Christ has to be right first. Has to be right first. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Being hospitable or be hospitable without complaint. This term, uh, above all things, you know, have or keep fervent love, it literally in the Greek is keep holding on to fervent love. Keep continually having fervent love. Now, this sounds great, but what is love? Is What is biblical love? Is it just accepting everybody? Is it doing stuff for people? Is it the feeling we get when we're around somebody? What is, what is biblical love? Well, the word is pretty familiar. It's agape, and it's not a feeling, but it's an action. It is the act of self-sacrifice in the context of obedience to him. It is God's love coming through us to others. We can't manufacture it. We can't bring it about. But when we abide in Christ, he loves through us. Turn to John chapter 15, John 15, verse 12. You see, by our old nature, we are so selfish. We are all about ourselves in every way. And then some people get think they're saved and they just put Christ on top of their selfishness. But when Christ saves us, he changes us. And when we abide in him, we have a different disposition towards one another in the context of obeying his word. John fifteen twelve. this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Now, if you've been with us in our Wednesday study of 1 John, you probably recognize that, that love for one another stems from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. And John has a lot to say about biblical love. And in fact, if you've been with us, 1 John is all about the reality of of what a true believer looks like and what one doesn't look like. And one who is true believer is going to, by his new nature, love the brethren. 
First John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. What does he say? For love is from God. The case he's been making throughout First John is you're born of God. If you, if you have a new nature because you're now in Christ, you're going to manifest that nature. Therefore, do it. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's true biblical love. It comes from God. It is not from man. But when we are abiding in Christ and trusting in him, we will obey God and love one another. We see that through, throughout Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians, we don't need to be taught to love. We're taught by God, he says, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. We know, 1 John chapter 3.14, that we have passed out of death into life, he says, because we love the brethren. When you truly come to Christ, we are changed. Now, we still have that old man hanging around, and we're tempted to be the same selfish person we used to be before, but when we trust and abide in Christ, we're different. His love is manifest in us. And that love comes in the context of obedience. We see that in, in 1 John chapter 5, and you can read that later. Love is God's love, which by nature flows from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Apostle Paul was so thankful, in almost every one of his letters, he thanked uh, God for the church's true manifestation of a real relationship with Jesus, for their love for the saints and their faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. And one last thing, again, we tend to think of love as simply you know, doing something for someone, but it, that's not completely it. It's God working in us in the context of obedience. One last passage in 1 John. Look to 1 John chapter 5. And while you're turning there, again, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is love. A fruit that is born in us when we trust in Jesus is a different disposition towards one another. It's from God. It's not from us. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. You can't manufacture it. 1 John 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Now notice this. This is so interesting. By this we know that we love the children of God. Here's how you can know, okay, Lord God, am I loving your people? How do I know? What does that look like? He says, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. That's not the Ten Commandments there. It's his commands. That's literally what it says. For this is love that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, when we obey God's word in relationship to one another, that's love. Christ exemplifies this. He came down and he was obedient to the Father to the point of death on the cross. He loved us so much, he obeyed the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. He obeyed in relationships to us and died for our sins. And when we allow God's word to work in our hearts and obey it in relationship to one another, God's love will be manifest between us. True biblical love for other believers will be manifest in the context of obedience. Not road obedience, but a changed heart. A changed heart. So back in our passage, 
above all things, keep having fervent love for one another. And I want to go through just really quickly in our time left, just some points about love here, and we'll, 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 we'll bring it to a, to a close here. Notice, first of all, the priority of love, above all, above all. Now, it's connected with the verse, keep fervent. Above all, keep fervent in your love. It's the most important thing. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent. It should be our priority. You see, before Christ, we were the priority. Guess he was the priority before Christ? That's me. I was the priority. And, and then when Christ changed my life, that old man had to die and dies daily. I have to say no to my desires, which are deadly and, and always bring shame and guilt and, and, and death. And say, no, and I trust the Lord. And when I trust him and obey him, he brings joy in the context of love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for another. Above all. And notice the way of love. Keep fervent. Fervent. It's not saying, okay, I can give you a ride today. You know? It's not the sense of, of I got to do something. There is an inward desire. This word fervent, ectanes. Ek means out. Taino means to stretch. Reaching out. It's as of a muscle being stretched. Speaking of maximum effort. Keep fervent in your love. That means our love can be not fervent, right? That means it can happen, right? Keep fervent in your love. The writer of Hebrews says we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How can we see each other as more important than ourselves? How can we obey God's word in relationship to each other? Above all, reach out fervently, and obviously in the context of dependent prayer. Keep fervent. And notice the object of love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. You know, in our passage, there's a lot of one another's. Let me just show you first, verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another. This love is primarily for the body of Christ because it's in the context of our family relationship. Now, certainly we love our enemies. Certainly we share the gospel and we have a concern, but there is a special love in the context of, of the body of Christ. Lord Jesus made it clear, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we obey the Lord in the context of a real relationship and we love one another, that is a picture of love which we see that God has for us and people will see it. We pray they would be saved. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. You can spot a child of God based on their love for one another. You know, if you are selfish and you've been selfish since the day you've been saved, I would question whether you know the Lord. We saw earlier that by this we know that we are his, right? If we love the brethren. It's, we have a changed heart. And if you realize that you're selfish and that you haven't had a changed heart, God is so gracious. He wants you to see your sin that you would turn to Christ and trust in him and be changed and be changed. Be looking out continually for ways to obey Christ in relationship to one another, how to love one another. We need to do that, and that's only as our minds are renewed in the context of our right relationship with Jesus. 
Now notice the reason for love. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is a paraphrase of, uh, a loose paraphrase of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. This leads to the question, does love really cover sin? If so, what does that mean? Well, we know the reality is that our sin is not taken care of or covered by anything apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can share a ton of passages on that. There is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given to men, much we must be saved. Acts 10, verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. Paul in Antioch, Acts 13.38. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Christ is the only way to have your sins forgiven. But here we have this statement, love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that? What does he mean? Some would say love just means acceptance of sinners. Well, that's not real love because they're not obeying the Lord's word, right? Because that's not the best thing for them. They need to know they're sinners so that they can come to Christ and be saved. If love simply means deceptance, then Jesus died needlessly, right? Now, there are many voices in churches calling for just love, which includes acceptance of sin rather than obedience to God that people might be changed, that people might be saved. Now, Scripture is clear that how to deal with a sinning brother. Someone is in continual habitual sin or someone's caught in a trespass, Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Yet you might be tempted. Do it in a spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18, this is for the continual habitual brother in sin that you, you care for. You're seeking him out like Christ is seeking the lost sheep. You go to him and you share it so that he might be one. We see that process in Matthew 18. So what is this talking about? Well, in James 5, uh, he says, My brethren... Verse 19, if anyone strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way saves his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The reality is if God uses you to help someone see their sin and they turn to Christ, that that covers a multitude of sins, right? But what is this speaking of here? I think in the context of our passage, I think it speaks of love passes over or covers a multitude of sins that we commit against one another. You know what? If you are around believers long enough, we're going to sin against one another. We're going to misspeak. We're going to do things that are wrong, that don't reflect our nature. It doesn't reflect the way we are. We're not caught in sin, but we do sin. And love covers. If I love you, I let it go. I let it go. And you let it go, unless it's something that is damaging you and it's not being let go, right? We overlook those things, those little things that we mess up in the context of a family in Jesus Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. We love each other. We're not to be offended by every wrong statement or miscommunication or offended if someone is late or or doesn't get an email or whatever it might be. We're not to be offended by things that people do that may mess up. We're not to be offended by that. That's a special time to wake up there. (laughs) So we're not to be offended. We're not to be presumptuous. You know, it is not loving to think of something. Someone says something, you don't start thinking about them wrongly. 
You don't presume about that. That's not loving. Guess what? People will say things. Walk away from it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let it go. We don't want to be the type of church where everybody's thinking this and that and this and that. That's not love. That's not love at all. One pastor writes, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. That's where love is, is missing. We've seen that here. We've seen that at times. The people are gone. We've seen that where everything is viewed with suspicion. Everything. It's not love. It's not love. It's not love to hold on to stuff. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, obviously there are times where we need to deal for the person's good, and God's word shows us how to do that. Let me share a passage here. Actually, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Someone says something, it's, it's okay, they messed up. Let it go. Let it go. Don't start holding on to things, letting those thoughts control your mind towards that person. Satan will use it. I'll tell you that right now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Set it aside. And notice what he says. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. That means you're, you're letting something go, Right? Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, what? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. As, uh, as Christ, uh, excuse me, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. So often people can be so unloving by holding on to things. Did you see what that person did? Did you hear about that? Whatever, you know, I can't say their name, but this is what happened. You know, don't do that. Don't do that. One last passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. God's word is really clear how we deal with those who are in unrepentant sin, who won't turn. God shares how to do it. There are little things we do that don't characterize us. And Satan will destroy the body if we give in to those sins by not loving. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And so, and so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, slander, gossip, no, patience, bearing with one another. Bearing means you're putting up with something. yes. They may have said something that was wrong. They may have acted a certain way or whatever it is. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I remember remember the Bible study a few weeks ago. Does anyone have a complaint against anyone? Right? What does it say? Forgive. Let it go. Let it go. Just as the Lord forgave you also, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How's your love? Is it fervent? If it's fervent, it's going to be obeying God's word, like we just read. It's going to be obeying God's word. Don't presume. Don't assume. Don't say things about people that aren't true. Don't slander people. Don't malign people. 
When someone says something that's wrong, don't run and tell someone else. That's not love. Let it go. Let it go. And if something continues over time out of a concern that you see, God's word shares how to deal with that privately first. Privately first. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And there's one last application here that we'll finish up with. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And some have said this, this is a whole new subject at this point. But actually in the Greek, there's no verb here. You, you could literally translate this way. Hospitable to one another without murmuring. It's connected to loving fervently. Love fervently being hospitable. The term hospitality here, transmitted hospitable, speaks of really a love of strangers, philozenos. It speaks of believing strangers in context, one another. And at this time, historically speaking, in the day that this was written, uh, they didn't have nice hotels. They didn't have the Marriott and places that were safe. When believers traveled, they stayed with other believers. They even had letters of commendation, recommendation. This guy's a good guy. He knows the Lord. And you, you, you would bring them to your house, let them stay for a day or two, whatever it might be. It was hospitality without complaint, by the way, because we can be tempted to complain. There's a lot of passages on this, and I don't have time to, to go through it, but you can look at Romans chapter 12, which Nick read earlier, and, and uh, other portions. But you would really need to be hospitable in that sense to a believing stranger. You would have to put yourself out, bringing in someone you don't know. Now, the days we live in are different. You know, we have inns, we have places, and in, in those days also, they had some basic rules. There was a thing called the Didache. It was some extra-biblical teaching, basically, and they said, basically, if someone comes, they stay one or two days, great. They stay three or four, they're not good guys. If they ask for money, not good guys. You know, this isn't saying have someone stay at your house indefinitely. People need to support themselves, but it's saying be hospitable. So with us, we have inns everywhere. We have all kinds of stuff. How does it apply to us? How do you treat those who are believers that you don't know? Every Sunday, what is it like? We have people come through the door who we don't know, and we assume they want to follow the Lord. They're coming to church. How do we treat people who are identifying with Christ? Are we focused on ourselves and our own little stuff, or are we hospitable? Hospitable. We have opportunities to do that. Wherever you are, how do you treat those who don't know Christ? How do you treat those who don't know Christ? We are to be fervent for our love for one another, hospitable, without complaint. That's the qualifier. Guess what? You're hospitable to somebody. It may cause you to miss something. It might cause you to grumble, that word grumble on the inside. Complain to yourself. I really don't want to be doing this. Don't do it. That's not love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for another. And I, and I share with people, I say, you know, before the service, it's not to be like some church that's trying to get people in here. I want people to feel welcome here. Be hospitable. Treat them the way you would want to be treated if you were coming and you didn't know anybody. Treat them the way you want to be treated. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. This life is a vapor. We could die at any time or Christ could come at any time. The end of all things is at hand. And if you're following Christ, you're going to suffer sometimes. You're going to suffer. People are going to malign you. You might lose relationships because you're doing the right thing. 
how we'd respond. First of all, we need to be right thinking. We need to get our minds thinking rightly through with the Word of God, being sober in spirit so that we can pray. We need to have our relationship with Christ right first. And then the time that's left on this earth, we should be loving one another. And as we'll see next week, serving one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your commands. And Lord, we fall so short so often. Help us to recognize when we are falling short that we would confess it. Help us to obey your word, to be reminded the next time our thinking is beginning to stray or we are getting overcome by circumstances, Lord God. I pray we would be of sound judgment and of sober spirit that we would be praying and trusting you. And Father, I pray that we would be loving one another fervently, that we would consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that we would be obeying your word in relationship to one another. Lord, when we are tempted to not love in the way we see people because of misspeaks or whatever it might be, Lord God, remind us of this passage. Remind us of your great love in Christ, which brought about our forgiveness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And I pray we would stay focused on him. In his name we pray. Yeah.